I'm Prime Minister Boris Johnson and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young, Consul General. Hello, I'm Kunal Khatri. I'm the Acting Trade Commissioner for the UK government in the US and I'm stepping in today as a guest host in place of my colleague Hannah Young. And I am absolutely delighted today to be interviewing Dev Pragad. Dev is CEO of the iconic American media brand Newsweek. And he has been leading that firm through a huge transformation from a once struggling publisher to a highly efficient digital enterprise with a hundred million strong global readership. Um, Newsweek under his tenure has become a real standard bearer for responsible journalism, workplace equity and inclusivity. And to make everybody depressed, he has achieved so much of this by the age of 36. It's been so successful that his story and his turnaround of Newsweek is now also a case study at the Harvard Business School. Just a bit on Dev's journey, and we will obviously dive into more about this. He started through studies at King's College London, the UK's oldest university and extremely prestigious, went on to become the founder of the UK edition of International Business Times, and then became majority owner of Newsweek in 2018. So we're going to have a conversation about Deb's life story, his UK, US and India connections, uh, his vision of leadership and purpose-driven leadership and change. And it promises to be a hugely fascinating discussion. But with that, Dev, welcome and great to see you again. Thank you, Kunal, for having me. Good stuff. Well, let's kick things off and let's start with a brief overview and your take on your career journey, your life journey, childhood to university to Newsweek. What are the key things that we want to hear and learn about death? Sure. Um, I was born in uh, South India. Um, uh, my parents left India when I was about 10 years old. Uh, they moved to uh, Bahrain in Middle East, where I did my high school. Uh, shortly after that, my parents uh, immigrated to London, England, uh, when I was 17. Uh, and I spent most of my life in England. Um, I went to university there. Uh, my parents still live there. My brother still lives there. I have a lot of amazing friends there. Um, so I went to university uh, at King's College London, which is the oldest uh, college in London, not in the UK, which is, uh, I believe, is Oxford. Um, and I had the privilege of doing a bachelor's of engineering there. Uh, I had some of the most memorable uh, times of my life during my academic career there, right? I, I absolutely loved it. I, uh, I was a total geek, um, and I totally geeked out. Uh, I won a lot of awards uh, during my uh, undergrad. Uh, my thesis uh, became a paper uh, at a local conference. On the back of it, uh, the director of the local research center where I did my undergrad thesis uh, for the Center for Telecoms Research, uh, Professor Aguami, he called me one day and said, look, I'm really looking for a great student who could work on this very prestigious uh, research project for a PhD, and I would like to give that to you, right? It's fully funded, it's full, you know, you have a stipend, your visa code, et cetera. So I said, okay, uh, but being the curious person I am, I did explore an opportunity at Oxford. God knows how he found that out. And he called me in the next day and he gave me an ultimatum. You either take opportunity at King's College London or you go to Oxford, it's your choice. Um, I looked at the project, the one at King's was really looking at um, the future of mobile internet. Uh, this is mid-2000s, right? Um, and I've just turned 20 uh, when I had this opportunity. Um, and 
uh, you know, iPhone wasn't there at that time. You know, the, the digital era that we see today did not exist at that time. But on, on the research side, we were working on all these things and we could really see this explosion of mobile uh, bandwidth that was gonna happen. Um, and I, I thought that project was so fascinating. So I stayed at King's and I had a pretty phenomenal run. Uh, I got to understand technology. I got to meet amazing people. I got to travel around the world, present papers, uh, publish papers, uh, file patents, etc. So at the tail end of my PhD, uh, right after I submitted my thesis and I was waiting for my um, oral defense, um, I had the opportunity of joining uh, IBT Media in the UK. Uh, it was a startup. Um, at the same time, I also had this opportunity to become a lecturer uh, at King's College London. Uh, the person who was to make the final call was my professor. Um, so, you know, it was a, pretty much a done deal. Uh, and I went into my supervisor to really talk about these two options. And he was like, uh, well, there is no way if you don't take this opportunity, you're ever coming back to academia, right? So you may as well forget it and kiss it goodbye. Um, so I ignored his advice and I took the jump and became an entrepreneur. Um, and for nearly 10 years, I lost all my relationship with Kings. Uh, and I'm pleased to say, you know, I've gotten back in very good terms with the people there. Uh, I've gotten to know the previous president uh, of King's College very well, Sir Ed uh, Byrne, uh, who was knighted last year, and also Professor Funmi, who's um, uh, the international vice uh, president. And they've been very keen for me to take a more active role uh, in the college once again, uh, obviously given my time commitment. So that's something um, uh, you know, that's happening in the background. But going back to 2010 and 11, uh, IBT Media benefited from this massive boom uh, in digital media, right? Between 2011 and 2014, um, the business grew massively, right? Uh, the UK business also grew quite substantially. Um, and I became one of the owners of that business. At the peak, we had over 100 people working for us in London. Uh, we had a beautiful office in Canary Wharf. Um, and it so happened in 2013, the team in the US acquired Newsweek. Uh, I contributed some funds during that purchase and got the rights to publish Newsweek International from London. Um, it's important to know the US and the UK operations were completely separate in ownership and in management. So I and my team ran the U uh, UK operation. And 2015 and 2016 were probably the best years uh, for my UK business. Uh, we had done a huge uh, deal with Yahoo News, uh, which had a massive explosion of our audience without any increase in cost, which made us immensely uh, profitable. Um, but fate has it that, um, you know, the U.S. business ran into serious issues and, and hit insolvency. Uh, it was a classic tale of two cities. Um, you know, my staff would be like, what on earth is happening there when here everything seems absolutely fine. And then finally, I get a call from then CEO of Newsweek and IBT Media asking if I could come to the U.S. and help turn around the business there. And my initial reaction was like, no, thank you, because I don't believe <laughs> it was possible to turn around that business. Uh, but after uh, quite a bit of uh, thinking, it became obvious that if the US business went under, eventually it will suck uh, under the UK business too. So I had no choice rather than to step in, right? Um, and in 2018, uh, one of the owners ran into some financial and legal trouble. So he exited Newsweek which is when we spun off Newsweek into a standalone company and I became an owner. 
since then, Newsweek has had an absolutely phenomenal growth. That's fantastic. So we're going to dive into a bit more of the, the US and Newsweek story, but just to go back to your days as a self-professed engineering geek, what attracted you to then a career in media news? What was it that took you on that path? Um, well, that's a, that's a great question, right? Um, part of that was I was a little bit disillusioned with uh, academia, right? Um, and, you know, if I were to stay in academia, I wanted to diverge and go into biotech because I, I briefly spent a couple of months um, at a biotech lab at King's Call um, uh, uh, Department of Neurobiology, Developmental Neurobiology. So you had these bio geeks working with computer scientists to figure out things, right? So they would do these uh, incredible uh, screenshots of uh, how the brain grows within embryo. And then they would try to apply computer algorithms to figure out what, you know, to, to figure out what's really happening and, and what sort of hypothesis they could come up with. I found that absolutely fascinating, but for some reason, I, I just had enough of uh, academia. And then this opportunity presented itself. And what really fascinated me was it was pretty obvious for us when we were working on, on, on increasing the bandwidth on mobile internet, when that really happens, it's going to explode the way people use the internet, right? Uh, that's going to transform digital media. When you really look at not just media and publications, but digital media in itself, it's a tech business, right? Most of the digital media companies are tech businesses. It runs on top of tech. And I always saw this opportunity from that prism, right? Uh, from an engineering prism, from a tech prism, and, and the fact that this is a business that's run on top of internet. And that was my speciality, right? Yeah. So that kind of got me quite excited. And I, and I thought, let's see what happens. That is quite a transition, neuroscience to media, but all makes total sense as well. So let, we'll come on to the Newsweek story, and in particular, your move and life here in the US and New York. But kick things off, do you recall, when was your first visit to New York? And what, what sticks with you from that visit? Right. So it was 2007 uh, when I first visited uh, New York. Uh, I was presenting a paper during my PhD uh, at a conference, uh, at an IEEE conference in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was a very prestigious conference, so I got approval from my professor to travel. And I got here and I thought I will check out New York on my uh, way to D.C. Uh, it was the beginning of winter. Uh, I was you know, extremely unprepared to, uh, to the New York winter. I thought I could survive, uh, you know, wearing the British way of dressing for um, winter, which is you just layer up, you wear your jumpers, you wear your scarf, you wear your hat, you wear your winter coat. And I was so terribly wrong. That particular day, uh, it was, there were brutal wind chill. It was so cold. I was, I just could not believe what I was experiencing. I had tears coming off my eyes. I thought I would die. Uh, but having said that, it made the trip all the more memorable. I'll never forget it. Uh, you know, walking across the streets of Manhattan, looking up all the skyscrapers was just phenomenal. That's great. I mean, that's a very British approach. Um, and so you've been now in New York, in the US for a while, leading Newsweek. Um, what do you most miss about home? What do you most miss about the UK? A lot. Uh, Obviously, my parents still live there. Uh, I miss them a lot. Uh, my brother and his family live there. Uh, I have a lot of friends uh, who I miss. Um, I miss the milder winters in London. 
uh, every time I go to London, there are two things that really stand out. One uh, is how gray it is. When I come back to New York, I very quickly forget how great can get uh, in London. So that's one thing that always uh, hits me very hard. And the other thing is how green uh, London is, right? So compared to uh, New York and especially Manhattan, uh, the, the amount of greenery in London just hits you so hard uh, and so impressive. Um, and I miss going hiking in Scotland, which is something I did a lot when I lived in the UK. Uh, and needless to say, the stunning and beautiful uh, architecture and history, right? That's that's yeah. not uh, that's irreplaceable. Absolutely. And just to switch this then to the business side, so not least my current role, very focused on business, trade and investment. You worked and led IBT Media in the UK, uh, Newsweek in the UK, but obviously out here. Very keen on your reflections and your perspective of different business cultures, UK and the US. What have you... What do you feel are the most stark differences in the way that we approach business, UK and the US? Well, the first thing I noticed when I came to the US is the sheer scale of things here, right? So, um, you know, there are, when, when you're working on deals uh, in the UK, if it's a few hundred thousand deal or a million or two, it's considered huge. Here, there are many people who don't want to work with you unless you're looking at a deal that's a few million dollars in size, right? So that's one thing that really hit me very hard when I came here. I was like, wow, this is this is pretty impressive the way they approach here. Uh, people here tend to be a little bit more aggressive and goal-driven uh, than the UK, where uh, I guess in the UK and Europe, relationships tend to play a much bigger role, uh, going out for lunches, drinks, et cetera, et cetera, here too. Uh, but people tend to be a lot more uh, focused uh, and aggressive. But also, people tend to take a lot more risks here, which I think uh, we could learn uh, a lot uh, in the UK. Uh, they tend to be a lot more conservative uh, and risk averse, whereas in America, they, if you have an exciting and an interesting idea, they really want to try it on, right? So I think that's why the startup scene does so well here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, equally, I'm very interested. You have a unique perspective tapping into what perspectives are of both U.S. perspectives, U.K. and U.K. perspectives, the U.S. How do you feel those perspectives, perspectives feel at the moment between both countries? Uh, in, in, in what context? Do you have a particular context in mind? Well, what do you think are the biggest attractions that the U.S. audience has towards the U.K.? Well... I mean, the royalty always plays a big part, right? I think, I think that seems to be the thing that people here in America seem very, very fascinated, uh, as well as the history and culture uh, that we have in the UK is something that they seem very, very fascinated about. Um, the you know, people in both countries speak the same language, um, but I feel culturally, there's just so much difference uh, in the way people approach life and the way people approach education and the way people approach uh, work, et cetera. Um, and I find these differences uh, very, very fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. One of the uh, biggest differences are, or different differences in culture and just political trend here is being around diversity and inclusion. Now you obviously, I think minority CEO of a very huge and influential media outlet. Um, I'm interested in how that feels for you. Has it shaped or changed anything in the way you've had to operate as a CEO or your career journey, being ethnic minority here in the US and also ethnic minority in the UK as well? Uh, well, in many ways, I, 
being an entrepreneur, uh, I was always my boss. Um, but I mean, I say this with, with, with a lot of caution, you know, there's always an undertone of sometimes slight discomfort when they see someone from a slightly different uh, background or someone that you, you, they're not used to. But I think we've come a very, very long way uh, since then, uh, right? And even in the last 10, 15 years, once I was traveling back from London and was at JFK, passing through the immigration, there was this wonderful black gentleman at the immigration desk. I handed my passport uh, while checking my document. He asks me, what do you do? I tell him I'm the CEO of Newsweek. He looks up at me amused and smiles. I smile back and I tell him, you are expecting the CEO of Newsweek to look different? He laughs and says, yeah. And I tell him, times are changing, aren't they? He laughs and says, yes, times are changing indeed. Uh, people are getting more and more used to um, people, people from ethnic minorities in leadership roles. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, glass ceiling that's being broken. I have three beautiful daughters. Um, and often I um, think about, you know, what are the opportunities they're going to have in the future? Would they have the same opportunities I've had uh, as a guy? Um, uh, you know, I've had a wonderful, privileged life. I've had a lot of amazing opportunities. I've worked hard. And whenever I've worked hard, I've reaped the rewards, right? So uh, would my girls be able to achieve that? Or if I were a woman, would I have been able to achieve what I've achieved? I'm not so sure. And one of the areas that um, I've, uh, in my own journey, I've, I've developed a lot of interest is uh, the role of women in leadership. Um, and there are the three different things that shape my narrative in that. Uh, obviously, number one is the time I've spent with my own daughters, uh, the, the, the constant way in which I see how their brain works very differently to mine. Um, and, and every time I notice that, I'm always wondering if in my leadership position, in my leadership decisions, if I've had that different perspective, what are the things I would have done very differently, right? Uh, and this kind of goes back to why diversity is so needed and why it's actually not just merely about equality, but it's actually about building something better. It's about building something that has true value in it, because when you have different perspectives, you build something that has much better value and depth to it, right? Um, and then the other thing that really influenced me is um, at uh, Harvard Business School, where I'm wrapping up a course, uh, there's a great professor called uh, Boris Groisberg. Uh, he does a lot of work on gender equality. Uh, and he recently wrote a book called uh, Glass Half Shattered, which is uh, with a lot of research, they look at the massive underrepresentation of women in leadership roles. Um, and across the board, women are massively underrepresented. And he's also done a lot of research that really looks at how in, uh, in a variety of circumstances, women are able to outperform men. Um, and, um, and, and when he found out that I have three daughters, he really took a lot of interest in mentoring me to kind of explore these things because he really believes uh, it's important because men hold so much power and influence in senior leadership role that they take a lot of initiative in having open conversations about it because there's so much value to be added by having a lot more diversity in that, right? Uh, and finally, um, I've had the privilege of uh, having a few amazing uh, women in my executive leadership team. And time and 
time again, they blow me away by unique perspectives that I've never thought about before, right? Uh, there's one even two weeks ago, um, there was an issue that happened and, uh, you know, some of my male colleagues presented that issue to me and presented a solution, which looked straightforward. I said, okay, then it ended up in her desk and she calls me late in the evening and said, Dev, I looked into this and I think you should really get to know about this uh, a bit more uh, in depth. And I was like, okay. And she calls me and she talks to me for 10 minutes. Initially, I don't understand fully what she's trying to say. Um, and after another five minutes, it suddenly hits me because she was able to look at it in a much more nuanced way through the layers of subtleties. And she was able to present me a perspective I've completely overlooked, right? Uh, and based on that, the decision I took was very, very different. So I went away from that call thinking how fortunate I am. I have someone like her uh, working for me, right? So uh, if you look at statistically, you know, there's 50% are women in population. But if you statistic statistically look at what representation do we have in, in leadership roles? Uh, because leadership roles are where strategic decisions that influence and affect the lives of so many people happen. And that important role is still massively underrepresented, right? So I think we as a society have so much to gain uh, in terms of value by making those uh, changes to happen. Yeah, that's extremely well put. And it's, I really enjoy the example on just how diversity is just core to the depth of the business. It's the value of the business in an industry such as media news, critical to shaping people's perceptions. I'm sure is equally critical and really good to hear. And you talked about Professor at Harvard, Boris Groisberg, um, and his role in mentorship and guiding you as well. I'm interested, uh, you, you do a lot with Harvard, you have the case study as well. Um, any examples of leaders who you have turned to for mentorship support advice or who have inspired you uh, in your um, job as well? Okay, that, that's a great question. Um, uh, I've had uh, the privilege of working very closely with Professor Linda Applegate and Professor Suraj Srinivasan. Uh, these are the two people who are writing the case study on Newsweek. They've worked with me very closely. Um, they have offered so much mentorship and so much advice to me whenever I needed any help, any advice. One of the uh, areas that, uh, in terms of leadership, that deeply impressed me was um, I had the privilege of uh, studying and following uh, Moderna and its CEO, Stefan Bounsel. Uh, obviously, Moderna today is a household name, uh, but that wasn't the case 10 years ago uh, when Stefan became the CEO of Moderna, right? Uh, it was so fascinating seeing the journey uh, of Moderna under his leadership. Uh, he was working for a, a big public company in France. He believed in the mRNA technology so much that he left that big job and he became employee number two at Moderna uh, at a time when they did not have a lot of funding. Uh, and he would often keep repeating how when they did not have money, they had to do spaghetti science just to prove mRNA as a drug could work. They were able to take the concept of mRNA as a drug to a completely different level. So when COVID hit, they were absolutely ready to launch a vaccine in less than two months, right? So which is record breaking time and which was just absolutely fascinating. So the very notion of how a company goes through changes and if you're a leader and you miss the change, he, he terms it, you become a boiled frog, right? Because the temperature around you keeps getting warmer right. and warmer and warmer and you just don't notice it. And suddenly it's just way too hot and, and you can't handle it. Um, and that uh, led me to this question, right? 
what would have happened if Stefan wasn't this competent or he failed in his leadership or if there was another lesser competent leader in his position and the very thought we may not have the vaccines that Moderna had produced today and the consequence that it would have had globally, right, was, was pretty eye-opening for me, right? So it really re-emphasized the, uh, the need for great leadership. Quality leadership really, really matters. And when you don't have quality leadership, the consequences felt, whether it be within a company, by its employees, by its customers, or in this particular matter, by the wider public, right? And, and obviously, uh, when I came on board to Newsweek here, the company here was pretty poorly managed by a husband and wife team. Uh, they ran the business to the ground and for a failure of uh, leadership, you don't need to look too much further beyond that, right? Because everything we are doing today, they had an opportunity to do, but they could not and they failed to, right? So that really is the failure of leadership. Absolutely. And let's, let's dig into that, talk a bit about the turnaround of Newsweek. As you said, it was on its knees you were initially reluctant to take the leap as well. Can you say a little bit about what it is you've done in Newsweek and how you've positioned it um, for the success it's now had? But also looking forward, what keeps you up at night and what is the next thing on the horizon that you're looking out for? Right, right. So that's, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, th 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 there are different phases to go through, right? So phase one was a huge salvage uh, operation we had to run to make sure the business is uh, a viable one. Uh, and that was incredibly difficult. It took us a few years. And the real transformation happened uh, when the ownership changed and Newsweek was spun out into a standalone company. Uh, that's when we were able to really scale the business without any of the old baggages. Uh, and at that point, uh, we had to make two very conscious uh, decisions, right? Uh, one is uh, we, we made a conscious decision that Newsweek will be a widely read publication. It's a, it's a publication for all Americans. We don't intend on being a very elite publication. Uh, and, and a lot of that was driven by uh, the thinking from the old Newsweek. Uh, so our editor-in-chief, Nancy Cooper, uh, has been with Newsweek since the 80s. Uh, so I'm a big fan of having a, a core team of people who have the historic knowledge of Newsweek and its heritage. So Nancy brings that to the table. And she always said uh, Newsweek uh, in the olden days, they would always think of it as mass with class. So they, they saw that as a mass uh, publication, but also with, with class and quality, right? Um, so for me, that was in digital terms, we needed to have at least 100 million uniques a month. Um, and when we first set that goal, most people kind of mocked us and they thought that's ridiculous. Uh, but we surpassed that last year when you put together our uh, audience reach across all the platforms, uh, you know, we had about 100 million. Uh, and then the next uh, part was perhaps even more important, right? It was to really define what Newsweek stands for. So we spent quite a bit of time really studying historically why Newsweek was such a beloved publication in America and all over the world, right? Uh, and I spoke to people on the left, people on the right, people who are well off, people who are not well off, uh, and people across the spectrum really loved the brand. They had a very deep personal connection to it. Uh, so we made a very conscious decision not to take a progressive or a conservative agenda, but to be a place that appeals to both. Um, and it took us nearly three to four months to come up with our new mission statement, uh, but we are very proud of that. And the very first bullet point in that statement says, Newsweek speaks to and listens to 
readers across the political and cultural spectrum. So everything we do, we try and make sure that it stays true to this, uh, whether it be recruitment or whether it be some important decisions we have to make, we try and stay true to that, right? Uh, and the best output of that was the debate platform that we have on Newsweek, where uh, we hold weekly debates on very difficult and important topics, uh, but it, it, in a civilized way. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the Western democracies is our ability to respectfully disagree, right? And still coexist, right? That's, that's the basic foundation of democracy. Uh, in America, especially, there's a lot of heated opinions today. Uh, and I think, uh, and a lot of polarization, uh, we, we aspire to be a place that can bring people together and uh, allow people to develop deeper appreciation for viewpoints that they don't always believe in, right? So we feel the debate serves that need. Uh, we, we have expanded that into podcast and our hope is that we'll eventually expand that into live debates as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I've seen the, the you have the debate platform and I think you've launched a, a diplomats podcast or discussion as well. So right. it looks like you're going into that space to actually facilitate a bit more discussion rather than just read an article, get your views and shoot off. Uh, today, we, we have an extremely scalable business uh, that is uh, generating high eight figures in revenue. You know, it's very likely we will go into nine figures in revenue. It's quite profitable. Uh, we are now really thinking about what can we do to make Newspeak uh, a long-term business, right, that, that could be here for the next 10 years and 15 years and beyond. And, and for us, uh, the real success of Newsweek would have happened when we break through the subscription business. So everything we do today is all about how do we build a loyal base of customers who follow Newsweek, who are willing to pay for uh, reading our stories and engaging with our platform. Uh, and the whole expansion and podcast and our franchise strategy is really an investment towards that. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so look, you're clearly passionate about media and news and you love it. This is a very, very different question. If you weren't doing this, Dev, what would you be doing? What is it that you love outside of your love for Newsweek? Um, well, I could see probably two things. Um, I'm, I'm such a geek. I always enjoyed studying. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure if I was not doing this, that's if I was in a different field, that's what I would do. I was briefly thinking I'll probably get into software, uh, computer science, which is really fascinating. That's very interesting, but I think academia and science is probably is, is, a, is a deep passion I have. There you go. So there's a second career in there as well, whether it's uh, tech entrepreneurship. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then the last question, which is totally unfair, and we'll edit it if you give the wrong answer. New York City or London? Um, you know, I would love to live in both places. If, if possible. There's something about America that really is very captivating, the sheer size of it, uh, the amount of diversity that is within this one country in terms of, uh, you know, geographical things to food, culture, etc. Is, is really fascinating. Um, you know, I still have a lot more to explore in America. Um, the weather is more stable. It can be extreme, uh, but it's definitely more stable. Um, you know, maybe in 10 years time, I, I might have enjoyed, uh, explored America enough that I do miss England and, and I, I may want to go back home. But right now, I feel there's a lot more to uh, explore here in America. Absolutely. I'm only one year in and I'm already besotted. There is so much to do, New York and across the US. 
Dev, look, it was a real joy speaking with you. I said at the start, at the top, this is the first one that I'm guest hosting in place of Hannah. And of course, go big or go home. And I'm really delighted to speak with you, Dev, and learn about yourself and Newsweek. Any final comments from you? No, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's, uh, this was fun. Uh, and I hope uh, we'll have opportunities to, opportunities to do many more of these. Great. Well, thank you once again for our listeners. You've been listening to Brits in the Big Apple, Kunal Khatri, the Acting Trade Commissioner for the Consul General here in New York. And we hope to see you and hear from you again soon. Thanks very much. <laughs>